phase one is, what it's going to cost for all this, and then we're, gonna, we're just going to pay on that as much as we can until um, uh, February, Marches, and then we're going to look at phase two and actually finishing the building going out behind me here. And so, so be thinking about that and uh, pray and give. Give to that. We need, definitely need uh, offerings to make this happen um, as quickly as possible. So I, I've been talking over the last probably six or eight months about cities around the United States that have become uh, sanctuary cities for the unborn. And uh, this is, this is a, I think, a very strategic way to push back on this. Uh, there is a website you can go to. Um, if you don't get this, when I say this now, you can um, call the church, email the church, and we'll send it to you. But there's a website called Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn. It's allonword.org, and uh, the all one word part is not in there. But uh, sanctuarycitiesfortheunborn.org, go there, and you can sign up, uh, put your name, address, information in there. And what it'll do is it builds a database of people in geographical areas for these, these groups of people, the legal teams and stuff that come in. It costs a lot of money and energy to do this, and so they want to know that there is a good base of people in the area to, to put their time, energy, and resources to. And so you can go there and, and put your information in. They'll try to eventually make um, Colorado Springs a sanctuary city. And, uh, and, and somebody asked me, this probably a few months ago, but somebody asked me, what does it matter? I mean, what's one city here or there? What is that going to matter? They'll just go to the city uh, next door and get an abortion there. And there's, that's truth to that, except for the fact that you can continue to make that circle wider and wider. And then it becomes an entire state. Mississippi is one of the strongest states right now that's pushing into this Supreme Court thing with uh, abortion. And, and they're, they're making it extremely difficult, illegal in many cases, and extremely difficult to get an abortion in the state of Mississippi now. You say, well, why don't they go across the state lines to another uh, state? Sure. But here's the thing, and this was the same argument when people uh, made uh, marijuana legal that I, I just don't understand why people don't think, is you make it legal in the area, and now you've got a 16-year-old that would never have tried marijuana that'll now try it. Because it's legal. Doesn't matter. Uh, that, that that really goes with anything that is that is um, illicit, immoral, or any of those kind of things. That when you make it legal, you'll have people that'll that'll jump in that never would have before. And and if you're talking about a young girl at a very crucial point in her existence, deciding what to do about this baby that is inside of her, if she's got to drive to a complete other state and then get somebody to take her there, and all the things involved with that the chances are extremely high now that she's not going to have that abortion compared to if it's, she can just go down to the clinic and get the, the school counselor to take her down there and not tell her parents. This is, this is big, big stuff. This is the way we fight against this and keep pushing and keep pushing. So go to sanctuary, um, sanctuarycitiesfortheunborn.org and just fill out your information and we'll just keep pushing against this. Something else that I've been mentioning for the last few months Longer than that, that is, um, <clears throat> I think, one of the most important subjects on the horizon right now for the world. And uh, no, the, most, the biggest danger to America is not climate change, okay? Uh, people that say that should be slapped. But here's something that is such a big deal that, we've been, that it is not getting talked about in American media. The only reason that I have information about this is because I get... Jewish newspapers, online newspapers sent to me, and, and, uh, and then I go to the websites that are appropriate to this. Even if you won't go to places like um, Citizens Free Press and stuff like that, there's not that much information hardly at all about this. And that is the fact that um, Iran has now, um, has, has been enriching uranium now to 20%. That's bomb level, Okay. They don't need that. That doesn't help them in, the, in, in um, energy production and stuff like that. And they are set now to take it much higher very quickly. And they already are enriching it to 20%. Now, Israel, <clears throat> the head of the Mossad and, and the IDF and all these different groups in Israel have said, we will not allow Iran to get a nuclear bomb. Now, this, this is the thing with me. Israel usually, they're not like America. They back up what they say. Um, and they're very, they, they will take care of this, but 
Guys, this is getting way beyond. So Obama set up the agreement with Iran and basically just said, Iran, we're going to let you build a bomb. That's what it was. And oh, by the way, do you need hundreds of millions of dollars? We'll bring it to you in stacks on planes. Okay. Trump gets in office. He does away with that. He pulls out of that. Uh, Biden said last week he's going to get back in the Iran Accord. All of this is being done, and, and uh, Iran is, is just letting them do all this stuff because they're enriching it constantly while they're stalling. And so this is something we should be praying about, thinking about. In fact, did you know Scripture says that every time you pray, you should pray for Israel? Scripture says that. So let's be praying for Israel about this. Let's be, let's be focused on this. Don't, don't be misled to think your little prayer doesn't matter. It does. They pray, pray about all of this, because as soon as Iran has a bomb, they're taking Israel off the map. And if you think anything else, you're extremely naive. That's what's about to happen. And so a little statistic as I jump into this, I, um, <clears throat> I found this interesting. There was uh, some surveys done. These were posted on different Christian websites. I know the Christian Post is one of the places, but um, it was talking about uh, the idea of do you have to believe in God to go to heaven? Is that a, is that a necessary belief? You have to, now, to me, that's like, I don't understand. It makes no sense because, you know, he made heaven. But either way, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I was, when I was in China one time, I visited a, a um, Buddhist um, temple. We climbed up this m- huge mountain on steps, just, I mean, just forever. And it was down the south part of China, which is like Georgia. And uh, so we were sweating like crazy. But we go up this, and we get to this, um, this temple, this Buddhist temple on top of the mountain. And the name of the temple was um, Heaven. And all the, the ceiling was painted with angels, and the walls were all blue and painted with angels and stuff like that. And then another um, uh, little jaunt up the mountain, another probably 200 yards up the side of the mountain, and you get to a higher temple, which is more of a, a, a Taoist type of, of a Buddhism temple, and it was named Hell. And it had, and I was like, I, I don't think, I think you guys got it out of order, but it, I mean, I'm, I'm not the judge. So, but it was all painted red with demons all over the building. I, I, I never understood that. But, so the belief in God. 39% of all American adults, it's not church people, it's just American adults, 39% don't believe that uh, you have to believe in God to go to heaven. I believe you can get to heaven. And by the way, I, I, I saw another interesting statistic that said um, over 70% of all Americans uh, don't believe that there is a heaven and a hell. Although about 60-something percent believe that there is a heaven and no hell. Why do, you, why do you just get to pick one? I have not found a statistic ever that says this many people believe there's a hell and no heaven. You have to be married. To, no, I'm just, I was just, so, <laughs> hey, it's heaven for me though, honey. So 39% of American adults don't, believe, don't think you have to believe in God to go to heaven. Now, here's where it gets weird. This is, this is why I'm reading this statistic. This floored me. 68% of Catholics say you don't have to believe in God to get to heaven. I, that, I just don't. That doesn't connect in my head. 56% of mainline Protestant Christians, like uh, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, say that you don't have to believe in God to get to heaven. Extremely discouraging. Now, when it comes into evangelicals, which we as a Pentecostal group would be part of evangelicals, right? Uh, at least gets better. Uh, 21% of evangelicals say you don't have to believe in God to get to heaven. But 21%, my, my question is this. Since that is like the basic starting point of Christianity, what are you? What are you if you don't believe, if you don't think that you have to believe in God to get to heaven? What are you doing? You, you, you're calling yourself a Christian. I, I don't get it. Now, here's a statistic that has been changing quickly over the last couple of decades. 31% of Christians from historically black churches say you don't have to believe in God to go to heaven. Now, why is that a, a 
a discouraging statistic because historically the black churches have been much more conservative theologically than than the equivalent of like a Baptist uh, or a non-black Baptist or a Pentecostal. The historically black churches have been much more conservative theologically, and they stayed there, and they stayed there until the last about 10 to 15 years, and it's been changing quite quickly. Um, that, that people don't think you have to believe in God. So, and these, these are church people. So, um, so on Wednesday mornings, I, I get to be a part of a, um, a uh, group of people, pastors from all over the world that are part of, uh, they, they're part of Joshua Nations, which is Vili right here. He, he's part of Joshua Nations. And this last Wednesday, I got to speak for that. And um, at the end of it, they do a question and answer thing. And one of the African pastors asked a question I thought was extremely important question. He said, We're, we've developed a tradition recently in, in the African church where you have, um, he said, you, um, <clears throat> the churches are, com- are getting all of the people in the buildings and they're praying and they're praying, they're praying. They're praying for the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit to go out and do ministry, but they're waiting until the Holy Spirit anoints them to go do ministry. He said, but then we never go out and do ministry. We're always just praying about it. We're praying for God's blessing, praying for God's lead, but we never go out and do ministry. And then he was asking me, what do you, uh, how do you, what do you do about that? And I told him, I said, the American church is, is extremely similar to that, except there's one major difference. We don't pray. That's really the difference. Um, guys, the, the, this, is, this is the thing, is, is God did not call us to just get together. He called us to do, to be. In every setting, in the marketplace, in, in, in every setting, we're called to be Christ in these settings. And so I was thinking about that, and I, and I mentioned last week, and I, and I had some really good feedback of this, of insecurity, that we have insecurities, and, and the way... I mentioned last week the way that we fight our insecurities is we, we let the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, show us how He sees us, and that will combat a, a, an insecurity or a, or a doubt about yourself or, uh, or a fear that you can't be or, or that, that maybe you're, an, you're incompetent or whatever the case is, all the different things that are, that are part of life. And, uh, you know, we pick on teenagers for things like insecurities and, and, um, and, and peer pressure and stuff like that. But, but I don't see really any difference from adults and teenagers in this. Adults are just as insecure and we have just as much peer pressure issues. And, and we don't deal well with them any better than we did when we were teenagers. We just, it's easier to notice with teenagers because they aren't, aren't as good at covering it up yet. As you, as you guys get older, you'll be much better at hiding all your problems. So, so here's the thing with this is if we're going to be the church, and I know I just keep coming back to this, but if we're going to be the church, at some particular point, we're going to have to let God tell us who we are, not the world tell us who we are. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is saying this to the church at Ephesus, but obviously since since God found reason for it to make the final cut of what we call the Bible or the canon, then obviously he's telling us too. He's, this is not just for the church at Ephesus. This is for us. He says, Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. As every one of us in here, you have been called by God. You've got to go there. You've got to accept it. You've got to embrace it. You have been called by God. Now, there are general callings for every human being to serve him, to live a life of holiness. He's gonna, he mentions some of these here in just a second. But there is general calling for all of us. But then there are very unique and special callings for, for each person, too. And he says, um, verse 2, always be humble and gentle. That's part of your calling. That's how you fulfill this calling. This is how you lead a life worthy of your calling. You be humble and gentle. You be patient with each other making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Now, we don't really struggle with this here. Um, I, I think some of it is because of my personality as pastor and, and, and who we are as a body. But we don't really struggle with a lot of infighting and some, some of those kind of things. Or if we do, you guys don't tell me, and I'm okay with that too. So, 
Um, but, but here's the thing. When a church gets to fighting with each other, the main reason is because you've taken your eyes off of Jesus and it's on something else. When you're finding fault with each other and it's always picking and picking and picking, it's because we've taken our eyes off Jesus and we're focusing on something else. We're focusing on self-stuff. We're focusing on us, our world, what makes us happy, what, what will bring um, comfort to us. Instead of, Jesus, if, if, if I'm serving, this is a basic thing for marriage too. The, the reason that, that uh, married people fight with each other is because they're looking at themselves. You say, no, I'm not looking right at that other person. They're the ones that's the problem. It's the, the reason you're seeing the problem in them is because you're not looking at what God is trying to do in you. Spend more time asking God to help you and your spouse will get better instantaneously. We do the same thing in church. We look at each other. Well, he's telling here, don't, don't do that. Be patient with each other. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit. Binding yourself together with peace. So this is the question. So I'm called by God. Yes. You called by God. Yes. So, so what if I don't feel cold? What if I don't? This is the way I always have people say it to me. Is, well, because of what I do every week, they say, well, pastor, I'm not you. I, you know, I can't preach like that or whatever the case is. Guys, first, God may not call you to preach like I'm doing right now. Okay. I don't think he calls everybody to do that. Um, in fact, the more people that he might potentially call in here, it's challenging job security for me. So the, the, he, doesn't, he doesn't call us all to do the same thing. He calls us all. He calls us all to minister. He calls us to pray. He calls us to witness. He calls us to love each other. He calls us to get in his word. All these different things. And, and, and the idea of somehow uh, what I do as a preacher determines, like, this is what ultimately called for. That, that is not the case. You don't graduate into finally you get to be a preacher. It doesn't work that way. In fact, that has always irritated me about how people look at ministry. When I was a youth pastor, I had no desire to be a lead pastor. I was called to be a youth pastor. And if you would have asked me then, I would have going to do that all my life. In fact, I won't hire somebody as a staff person if their desire is to work up some kind of proverbial ladder. That doesn't exist. It, it makes no sense in ministry. If you're just doing this, like, 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 um, like Josh, he's a youth pastor. If his goal was ultimately to be the pastor, then he needs to stop being a youth pastor and start being a pastor. He's a youth pastor. Now, that doesn't mean that's not what God's going to do with him someday. And you have to be open to that, but there's no, there's no ladder. I'm not... I'm, like, I'm not like the ultimate calling in the church that my calling is better than somebody else's. That makes no sense. My calling is, is specific, and it's specific to me, and I have a specific responsibility. But guys, your calling is just as important for you. Just as important. And, we, and the church doesn't do a good job with this. We do not do a good job, and we've got to tear this stuff down. Your calling is just as important for you. It's just as vital for you. There is no ladder in the kingdom of God. We are called by God to minister to people. And here's the thing. You've got to embrace it. You're called by God. Every, every one of you, and you say, well, I can't. Or I don't. When you start doing that, in fact, I wish I had the ability. I wish I had the ability to back up 30-plus years the very first sermon I ever preached at 19 years old, it was in Marshall, Texas. And my parents had come to see me preach, and my sister was with them, and Linda was with me, and her, and her friend from college, which is, it was her dad's church. That's how, that's how I got the gig. <laughs> uh, she went to school with me. And, and, um, and then her parents, the pastors of the church, and then like one other family. That was everybody in the building. And, uh, and, I had, and I'd prayed, I'd prayed, I'd prayed, I'd ask God, God, what do you want me to speak about? What do you want me to speak And I didn't know how to do this. I, no, I mean, I took a class on how to make sermons, you know, three points in a poem, and that really does nothing. Well, it might maybe a little bit, but it doesn't do much to prepare you for actually speaking in front of people. Because there's not anywhere in the class where you convince yourself to stop your legs from shaking. There is not that moment in class where this is how you do this. And so I, I'm, I get up to speak, and I'm doing this. 
Well, first I prepared this message, and I knew, okay, man, this is good. This is, you know, it was, it was you know, basic stuff. But, but um, and then I, I just didn't feel totally good about that, so I made another message. I prepared another message. I was like, this one, this one is a good one. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. So I made another message. So now I had three messages. And I go to the church that night, and I get up, and I am scared. I'm literally shaking. I'm holding on to huge, big wooden pulpits. And I'd held on to that thing to keep me from falling down. And I think, okay, I'm going to preach. So I open my notebook, and there's my first sermon. It's almost written out word for word. And um, so I preach that, and I preach it with everything I've got. I put on myself into it, the intensity, everything that I needed. I, I, I had learned in classes and all kinds of stuff and seen over the years. And I finish, and I look up, and I've been going about six minutes. I was like, that's not good. It felt much more like an hour. So I said, point two, and I go to the second sermon. You see where this is going. I finished that in about five minutes. And so then I go to point three, the third sermon. And the whole thing, the whole thing was like 15, it was less than 20 minutes, 15 minutes. And, and then I think, well, now is the time. This is what I've been shooting for since I responded to the call to ministry. So I gave an altar call for salvation. Did you hear who was in the building? My family. I felt like they were Christians, but I wasn't going to take a chance. The pastor, it could be iffy, his wife. So I just, I kept saying, and I'm, I'm just going to wait. Let's just wait on the Lord. Just wait on the Lord. Anybody in here want to get saved? Just raise your hand. I, I didn't see a hand. Okay. And so I kept waiting. Finally, the pastor, you think I'm making this up. Finally, the pastor walks down front, and he's standing. I'm standing up on the platform. He's standing up. And I, so I walk down to him. And I, in my head, I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's saved. But, but I, maybe this is why the Lord brought me here tonight, right? So, so I go down, and I ask him. I say, are you wanting to get saved? He says, no, buddy. We're all saved in here. But I do want to go home. So let's pray. <laughs> I was like. So here's the thing that I've, here's the thing when it comes to calling. Guys, God has turned me into one of the most powerful preachers you'll ever hear <laughs> in your life. So here's the deal with this. Don't try to figure out what God is doing when he calls you to do something. Just do what he says. He's called you. I know he's called you. Scripture just told us that. I know he's called you. So just figure out how to do that. And it may not be what you're doing 10 years from now or 20 years from now, but just start with what he's telling you right now today and just do that. Just minister to somebody. Just pray for somebody. I know that sometimes we think, well, though, I'm not an outward person now. I'm not an extrovert, so I can't witness to somebody. Most of the people that get saved, overwhelmingly, most of the people that get saved, get saved from a very close friend or a family member. In other words, if you're an introvert, your statistical potential for seeing somebody get saved goes way up, not down. Talk to somebody. When they trust you, they'll listen to what you have to say. Witness to somebody. Pray for somebody. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Now, this is an interesting thing about the book of Acts. And I've written some stuff about this. In fact, part of this, some of this is actually in, in part of my dissertation. I don't see a lot of guys focusing on this. And this needs to be focused on when it comes to the book of Acts. In fact, I think this is a major, this needs to be the brain process when you're looking at the book of Acts. Luke wrote the book of Acts to Theophilus, same guy he wrote his gospel to. Theophilus is a Greek. That's a Greek name. Theophilus is a Gentile. He's not Jewish. The reason that Luke is writing this, in our Bible, sometimes at the heading of your Bible, depending on who published it, it'll say instead of Acts or the book of Acts, it'll say the Acts of the Apostles. That is not a good title for the book of Acts. That is, that is something a man came up with. Luke didn't sit down and say, now I'm going to title my letter to Theophilus, the Acts of the Apostles. The reason that's a bad title is because the apostles are not the ones that, that the book is focusing on. The book is focusing on the Holy Spirit, and he's using a lot of people that are not apostles. He's using non-Jewish people. In fact, that is a major, major point that Luke is trying to get across by the time he gets to the end. Write down, just sometime write down all the names that pop up in the book of Acts and who they were. Greek, Gentile, Jewish, 
apostle, whatever, and write down, and then the miracles that they did or the miracles that they received. By the time you get to the end, it's mostly Gentiles. That's the point. And so he comes to Acts chapter 10, right? And he tells the story of Cornelius, which I'm about to read. Acts 11 repeats the story. It's the only story in all of the Gospels that is repeated this way in the same book. Okay? The reason is because first he's saying it to Theophilus, and then Luke is using Peter to come back to the Jewish leadership and explain the exact same story to the Jewish leadership to prove that a Gentile can get saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the point. Why? Because it's two Gentiles. And he's trying to show all the people that are not Jewish. This was a Jewish religion. Christianity was Jewish. And he's trying to explain to the Greeks and to, the, to, the, to all the, what we would call the barbarians. He's trying to explain to them, you can be saved. And more important than that, you can lay hands on people and they'll be set free. You can lay hands on people and they'll be healed. You can witness to people and they'll be saved. Who? You, Theophilus. You can do this. So this is where we come to in, in Acts chapter 10. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man. He's not Jewish. A devout, God-fearing man. He's not part of Judaism. See, this is one of the things that we miss sometimes when we're, when we're reading through the Bible. You understand that, that uh, Judaism was very endocentric, and the Old Testament was endocentric. You had to come in to the... Um, to the people of God. You had to come into Judaism. And then there was this huge requirement. You had to get circumcised. That's a pretty big requirement. At that point, I'm like, I'm going to worship from afar. <laughs> but, but see, then Jesus dies on the cross, and he'd been telling him, go out, go out, go out. It becomes exocentric at that point. All of a sudden, now you're supposed to be going out. But, but the rules of endocentric Judaism had to be changed or the same thing that happened from Old Testament to New Testament with everything else is they had to be fulfilled. The reason for the dietary laws, uh, yes, there was some health reason, but there was also some, some uh, focus reason that said these, th you're going to separate yourself in different ways, and this is one of the ways. The, the circumcision thing, there was no doubt that you were serious if you go all the way to circumcision, all these different things. But here's something that gets missing sometimes is the Old Testament, even though it's endocentric, there is a, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. It was always God's intention for people to be involved. For people of all groups, not just Judaism, from outside of Judaism to be a part of this and to fear God and to serve God and to worship God. That was always his heart. Jesus fulfilled it when he gave the Great Commission. He finalized it. He updated it when he gave the Great Commission. That's what he was doing. It now became exocentric. And so now God says, okay, now we're going to need some different um, guidelines for this. You can't have all of the same rules that you had before. In fact, when Peter comes back to the Jewish leadership and he explains this to them, they say, well, I guess we got to figure out what rules should we hold them accountable to. Circumcision was no longer one of them. Although Peter, years later, does try to reenact circumcision, and Paul jumps on over him and says, Peter, you're the one that got the vision in, in the book of Acts. That's another way he said it. But you're the one who got the vision. Now you're saying they got to go back to circumcision? All right, look at this. Cornelius, he gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. The angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. That, that was a dude that, that laid out and got darker in the sun. So, <laughs> verse 7. Somebody like, I didn't know that. Write that in your Bible. Write it. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened. He sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on a flat roof to pray, to also tan, because he was following the guys. So it was about noon, and he was hungry. You know, I, I read a thing years ago that the reason he had this vision and included animals was because he was hungry when he had the vision. 
Some people are stupid. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Now, now this is big. Peter, all of his life, had been taught, you, do, you don't eat those things. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. He feels so strongly about his religious structure that he's willing to argue with an angel of the Lord in the middle of a vision. That's, that's pretty serious. And then the, the angel says, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Why was it repeated three times? So there would be no confusion about the vision. It would be exact. And and it was also saying, I'm pretty serious about this. I'm going to show you this thing three more times because I'm serious. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. And he said, what could the vision mean? Well, let's go over what he said, Peter, because that's what it means. But see, Peter had been so caught up in this for so long and that this is his structure. This is how he's designed. This is how this is, you know, this is who I am as a person. Part of my personhood is included in this. And he just couldn't go there. What does the vision mean? And then immediately after this, Cornelius, his household, the, the servants show up and they say, Peter, will you come to us? An hour before that. What was Peter's answer? No, I can't go with you. Um, I can't, definitely can't go into your house. I cannot cross the threshold. In fact, I can't even touch you under most circumstances because you've been touching things unclean. That's a guarantee. I can't cross the threshold, and I definitely can't go inside and eat what you have in your house. And I cannot pray with you to accept Jesus as your Savior because you're not Jewish. And God says, for this to work and for us to get these people to know me, I've got to to change some of these guidelines. So Peter, everything you see in this sheet, you can eat. Which I'm very thankful for. Right? As a bacon eater, I'm very thankful. I love a good ham. I'm thankful. There were pigs in that sheet. You know there were. In fact, there might have already been processed bacon in that sheet. Skip the middleman, just go straight to slab of bacon. But, but now, now we understand that the main focus is not the food, but the food is included in this. Because why? He can't go to Cornelius' house and say, Jesus died on the cross for everybody. We're all the same. We're all equal at the cross. Uh, No, I can't eat your bacon-wrapped jalapeno poppers. Well, because that's unclean, and you're unclean. You, You see? And so God said, now, Peter, here's the thing. Don't call something unclean that I've called clean. Now, guys, here's where it comes down to for us this morning is I think that we have the equivalent of doing this. When we say things like, well, I can't can't do the ministry. I don't have the abilities. I I don't have the competency. I can't this. I can't that. Or here's a big one. Um, I struggled with this for a lot, and I know many people do, is, no, I've, I've done too many things wrong. I've sinned too much. So many times over the years, I've had people say to me, Pastor, you don't know my past. And I don't want to know your past. It doesn't matter whether I know your past. I didn't die on the cross for you. My blood does nothing but coagulate. It cannot help you at all. But the person that does know your past, and he knows everything about your past, he's the one that died on the cross for you to be forgiven. And he's the one who said that he will, his grace will cover you and will forgive you. He's the one that said that. I didn't say that. It doesn't matter what I know. It matters everything how you understand what Jesus knows. Not what Jesus knows, but how you understand it. See, God's called you. And there's nothing, 
There's nothing that will disqualify a broken and repentant heart from God's calling. Nothing. You, you get before the Lord, and you're, you're open and honest with him. Jesus, I want to be used by you, and he can do things that will, will amaze you. He can do things that right now you didn't think is possible. And, and here, here's one that, that also gets under my skin is when people say, older, older people, they'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of backing up and letting some of the younger people do it. But that's, that's not, that is not biblical mindset. In fact, the biblical mindset is we need older people to help the younger people. We need the older crowd to come alongside the younger crowd. The younger crowd's got the excitement and the exuberance, but sometimes they don't have the wisdom. And they need the wisdom. And guess what? Sometimes the older crowd doesn't have the excitement and the exuberance. And you need to be prodded. And the young crowd can do that. And nothing else just make you feel guilty because they're all excited. They're like, ah, oh, I used to be excited about Jesus like that. What? When did you stop being excited about Jesus like that? You need to go back to that day and start there repenting. Because we need each other. You have a calling. Age, age doesn't matter. You have a calling. God wants to use you. He wants to do stuff. He wants to do stuff outside your scope. He wants to do stuff that you don't think is possible. But what happens is we say, what, what I believe is what God is saying to Peter, God calls us called and we say, I'm not called. God says, don't you, don't you call something unclean that I've called clean. Don't, don't take something that I have made amazing and forgiven and covered with the blood and anointed. Don't take that and disqualify yourself somehow. You're called. Do what God is, do what God is asking you to do. You say, well, I don't know if I can do it. It's scary. Yes, join the crowd of everybody in the Bible. It's intimidating. It's scary. You don't always know. You don't always know. If, you know, I, I always use this scripture out of context. Habakkuk 1.5 says that um, God doesn't tell you ahead of time what he's going to do because you wouldn't believe him. Now, the stuff ahead of time that he's talking about is horrible destruction and, and wiping out people off the face of the earth. But take that off and just use the verses there, and I think it works, okay? Because I use this for myself. I, I know if God would have told me 30 years ago what he was going to do at different times in my life. There's no possible way I would have. I couldn't have gone there with him. It's too big. It's too daunting. It's too scary. The idea when I preached that first message 30-something years ago, if, if, if you would have been able to fast forward and show me me now, I, I, it wouldn't have connected for me. Back in those, the way I preach now, back in those days, I would have told you that's not real preaching. If you didn't grow up in the South and Pentecostal church, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You had to run a bunch and scream and jump up and down and, and wave hankies and, and all that. If you didn't do that stuff, you weren't a, a legitimate, I'm not joking, you weren't a legitimate Pentecostal preacher. Well, I, for most, sometimes of the year, I might could do that kind of stuff. But right now, Thanksgiving and Christmas, my pants are too tight. I can't do this stuff. I just got to stand here and just hope that it comes out the way it's supposed to you got to put all the jumping and stuff in there. I can't do it. And I would have told you, I'm not kidding about this. 30 years ago, I would have said, what I do now is not real preaching. Because I've been trained that way. And here's what I found out. It's the coolest of preaching. <laughs> I want to go to Job. And this is something I think is important here. Now, this is not, this, this scripture would seem like it's a little bit of out of context um, the way I'm going to look at it, because this is not what God was trying to say to Job, okay? But I go back to chapter 38, 39, 40. I, I go back to these chapters very frequently, and I read through the entire thing. I'm just going to read some scriptures out of this. But I go and read this often, a handful of times a year, and I read down through these scriptures because why? There's some stuff in this scripture that I need to be reminded of that doesn't come natural. I have to let the Holy Spirit remind me of some things. So, so God is speaking to Job about this. And he says, who is this that questions my wisdom? He's talking to Job, but I also think he's talking to his three friends. And then Elihu at the end, uh, he, he comes in and, and he's like picking on Job, one of Job's friends, because they're not giving advice. And like all four of them are messed up. 
And uh, God says to all of them, but specifically to Job, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? I can't tell you how many times God has said that to me. When, I, when God is showing me and leading me and guiding me, and I say, but God, I, I've got a better plan. Now, that's not the way I say it, right? I just convince myself in my head that what I'm thinking is really what God is saying, although I know it's not. And then God says to me, who are you again? And then I love the fact that he says with such ignorant words. He's not playing around here. God is not politically correct. He's never been. He says, brace yourself like a man. When God says that to you, <laughs> you understand. You've crossed a line somewhere he's not okay with. But this is the cool thing is he is graceful enough he doesn't just squash you. Right? Isn't that comforting? What did you just do? Do it again. Okay. <laughs> thought maybe you were getting the Holy Spirit back there, but. Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. He starts off from the very get-go. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I say, what does this have to do with... with I say, look at this. If God has called you, he knows why he's called you. God's using you. He knows how to use you. He made the earth. Who are you to question his calling in your life? Just do it. Just do what God has said. Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions? Not can you measure it. That's the next sentence. Or stretch out the surveying line. That's can you measure the earth. Back then they couldn't. Now we can measure the earth. In fact, even 400, 450 years ago, scientists were estimating how to measure and they got fairly close. Now we can measure it exactly. We've got GPS. We can do everything. But that's not what the first question is. The first question is, who determined its size? See, this is one of the things that, that we, have no, we have no basis for. We don't even have a basis for asking the question, is why is the earth the size that it is? Now, since not one inch with God is ever coincidence, the size, the exact size of the earth has meaning to it. We just don't know what it is. We don't even know that we need to know what, it's, what it is. But when we step into eternity, we'll know. And we'll go, oh, yeah, that, that does make sense, God. Thanks for that. But he says here, who determined its dimensions? You didn't. God did. Who supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstone? Is there a potential that there is a cornerstone for the earth? Yes. That's not a trick question. It's Jesus. The Bible says it's Jesus. He is the cornerstone. For what? Everything. He is the cornerstone. As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Verse 31. Can you direct the movement of the stars? Binding the cluster of Pleiades. Now you understand God didn't name it that. People named it that. But he's letting them use the name so you know what he's talking about. Or loosening the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons? Or guide the bear, that's a constellation, with her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? And nowadays we know much more of the laws, not all. In fact, I would say very little in, in reality. But we know a lot of the laws of the universe. But then he says, can you use them to regulate the earth? Like this idea, and I've never understood this, where they can predict climate change for 50 years? For 50 years, but they can't tell us the weather next week? I've never understood that. The arrogance says, no, we got this. We got this. 50 years from now, it's all going down. Well, really, it's usually on a 10-year rotation, right? That's what it is. Um, when, I, when I was in high school in the 80s, uh, we were not going to get to the year 2000. But by the year 2000, Earth was going to be destroyed. Then Al Gore came out with his um, time clock, his 10-year time clock. By 2012 or whatever it was. And uh, Rush Limbaugh put on his website a countdown clock for that. And then we passed it. But here's the thing. Why hasn't Al Gore come back out and said, um, you know, I, may, I got that one wrong. We just say stuff. You can't use any of this stuff to regulate. the. Th this sentence right here should say, do you think 
your combustible engine, internal combustible engine, can regulate the earth? The answer is no. Climate changers. Verse 36, here's, here's the biggest one. For me, this is what moves my spirit. He says, who gives intuition to the heart? You can't even explain it. We know it's there, but you can't explain it. Feeling, love, nostalgia. I, I talked about that a while on, some, on a Wednesday night a few weeks ago. That's one of the biggest that's, that um, mental health can't figure out. They can understand the purpose for memories, but they can't understand a purpose for nostalgia. It doesn't seem to give a purpose. Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? Chapter 42, this is what, this is what Job responds. This is the proper response. I have only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said. You ever want to say that to God? I have said that to God. I've apologized to God. God, I was a little out of line a couple of days ago, and I said you didn't love me, and you were mad, and you never give me anything that I want. And you know the, you know, the same things you've said before. And I've apologized to God because I get a moment of clarity, of spiritual um, epiphany that says the fact that I'm breathing air I was using the air that God gave me to, to verbalize anger against him think about that the arrogance that we have as human beings the the, the, um, the self entitlement you know we're, we pick on society a lot right now because everybody's entitled right everybody's entitled and they are it's out of control entitled Guys, that's called humanity to some extent. We all have a sense of entitlement. I deserve. Be careful the moment you start saying, I deserve. Be careful. You are, you are getting into a trap right there. You deserve? If, if you've never been outside the continental United States, now, this, this would be challenging right now, but go to a third world country and then talk about what you deserve. We have so much. He says, I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Number one, God, you are in charge of everything. You are in charge of everything. Number two, God, I submit to you. If number one is true in your heart and your spirit, it is true. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. But if it's true in your heart and your spirit, then the next sentence should be, I submit to you. It should be. First Timothy chapter 6. Verse 11, but you, Timothy, are a man of God. If I had the ability to be able to put this into somebody's spirit, and if I had the ability to go back to me 30 years ago and put this into my spirit, you are a man of God. I disqualified myself so much with all the things that I was, things that I did, who, the things I said, all this other kind of stuff. I disqualified myself. Every time, anytime something came up, I would disqualify myself. I, I, don't, I don't really struggle with that the same way now. It doesn't mean that I don't have insecurities and in things. I do. But, but I really do work hard at just putting, putting those, like 2 Corinthians 10, bring those thoughts in obedience to Christ. I work hard at that. Why? Because it's just Satan trying to, to, to disable you so you can't do what God has said. Satan's just trying to play you. And, and, and if you're not careful, we do this so much in modern Christianity. We let him. We let him play us and completely disqualifies us. And then we get in these patterns of discouragement, which then lead to depression. And then we don't know why we got in depression. And it starts with just getting before the Lord and saying, Lord, you're the one who made me. Now tell me what to do. Instead of trying to figure it all out ourselves and being miserable with all the results of our decisions. Get before God and say, God, what do you have for me? And then live today that way. Live the next day that way. And not try to do it yourself. Not try to make it yourself. If I had the ability to put this in people, and I, and I do have these conversations with younger pastors on a regular basis nowadays. But, but I would say for any of us, just to put into your spirit, you are a man of God. You are a woman of God. In fact, this is one that I think is, is just necessary for the church in America right now. Is We need more women to know you are a woman of God. You need to know that. And I'm saying specifically women that are trying to do what God has told them to do and do ministry stuff. The church is still not 
good in some ways of giving the same freedom to women that they give to men. Okay? We, we work hard around here at that. Um, I, I believe very strongly in egalitarian mentality that women are in equality with men. They're not the same. They're, God didn't design them the same. We talked about that a lot Wednesday night. If you want to hear that, you got to go listen to it. I'm not repeating most of that again, ever. <clears throat> but, but here's the thing. God created women equal. God can be, I mean, women can be in ministry just the same as a man can. It's goofy, it's goofy church people that have made that not possible. This is one of the things I never understood. I went to Denver Seminary. Got my master's there. Four-year program. They were letting women come to Denver Seminary and do a four-year program, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of money. And, but then when they graduate, they give them a degree, but they wouldn't have the ministry ceremony for them that they had for the men because women couldn't be in ministry. But you'll take their $200,000. Ah, as people, we don't do a good job at peopling. As we're, we're, to put in your spirit, women, girls, girls, young girls, you are a woman of God. You don't let a person determine that. You let the Holy Spirit tell you that. Then you let the Holy Spirit call you. Not a man. I have, I have ordination in the assemblies of God. The only thing that is, is a ratification of what God has done in my life. If tomorrow, for some reason, I could not be Assembly of God pastor anymore, I mean, uh, ordained with the Assemblies of God anymore, that doesn't change who I am. It doesn't change anything. In fact, it just gives me the ability to take my tithe from there and put it back in the church. You don't know how much I've considered it for that reason. It's just a ratification. You don't have to have papers with a group. God's called you. Paul wasn't ordained with anybody. He was called by God. Timothy, called by God. He wasn't ordained by anybody. And I've had people try to make the argument now. Yeah, they had an ordination group there that gave me. No, they didn't. Called by God. You're called by God. He says, so run from these evil things. If you're called by God and you aren't, you run from evil. That's simple. Run from evil. Don't, don't, don't try to play both games, both sides. Don't try to have one foot in calling and one foot in, in sin and all the junk of the world. They're not compatible. Sin is destructive. The quicker you acknowledge it, accept it, and repent of it, you can move on. As long as you keep one foot in there and it's not that big of a deal, you're going to be, you're going to be uh, trapped. You're going to constantly be trapped, and you can't do what God has called you to do. He said, pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. That's where you start. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Guys, we need more and more Christians to recognize their calling and stand up and fight. Fight for your marriages. Fight for your family. Fight in the public arena. Not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. We need, we need more Christians to fight. He said, hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you. Why? Because it's not eternally secure unconditionally. It's eternally secure as long as your heart is eternally in Jesus. But he says hold tightly. Why? Because you can, you can lose it. It can slip out of your fingers if you start getting your eyes on something else. Pretty soon you, you're not squeezing tightly to this thing anymore because your attention is somewhere else. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray. And um, <clears throat> in a minute here, I'm going to ask you to come down front. We're going to have some people pray for you. But, but here is here's what I want us to process. Every one of us in this room is called by God. We've already established that, okay? You have to decide whether you're going to embrace it or not. That's totally your deal. But we've already established that. So let's go to kind of the next step is, are you going to obey this call? Now, some of you, you're saying, I know I'm called and I'm obeying it. Okay, but some of you are saying, I know I'm called, but I'm not doing what God has told me to do. I'm resisting, maybe, maybe laziness, maybe just rebellion. Maybe you just got caught up in the routine of life, which is usually what the case is. But you know you're not doing what God has called you to do. 
And I would say more on the lines of being. You're not being who God has told you to be, and so therefore you're not doing what God has told you to do. You say, I, I've got to obey God's call. And then obviously, if you're going to obey God's call, it means you've got to fight the fight. Right? Bow your heads. Lord, we ask you to open our hearts. And I know that all through this room are people that are struggling with this right now. Lord, you've called them. They know it. They recognize it. God, they've got reasons why they haven't stepped into it. God, I pray, just soften their heart right now. Let them know you, your plan is so big and amazing. They'll just do, just do what you've said. God, so many times I've resisted your call. And God, every time you brought back grace and you bought, brought back forgiveness, and Lord, you put me right back on track. God, I know, I know you can do that with every person in this room. Jesus name so if you say that's me I'm, I'm not responding to God the way that I'm supposed to I'm not being obedient to this call I'd like you to come down front and just line up along the front we're going to have people come and pray for you pray with you and to know and to trust and believe that God's plan for you is still amazing and big today as it was the very first time you sensed who he was. Thank you, Jesus. stepping out and coming down front, you're saying, God, I'm going to do something about this. I need your help. I'm going to do something. I'm going to change something. I'm going to listen. I'm going to respond. Before I do that, I, I think I think there's still some people that are processing this, and um, you just need to be down here. So I don't want to push through this yet. One of the ways that I used to say this to God, knowing that I needed to come down, is I would tell myself, "God, I'm going to go down there, and then I'm going to discuss when I get down there." whether I'm supposed to be down there with you. Right? God is so big and so patient with us. I don't even think we understand the word patience at that level. So uh, why don't some of you come down here and... Um, just stand behind, for you guys down here, step up a little bit so people can get behind you. But just come stand down behind some of these and just, just pray. Specifically, if you've been here, if you know what it is to resist what God is telling you, to, to divert your own attention kind of thing. <clears throat> God, I lift these men and women up to you. First, Lord, to put into their spirit right now profoundly 
put into their spirit that they are men and women of God, that they belong to you, that they're yours. You created them. You designed them. You called them. You've used them. God, you've got plans to continue to do that at at astronomical ways. So do something big right now with them, Lord God. In their spirit, not what not what they're going to do, but Lord, in their spirit, do a little a personal revolution, Lord, where you show them the amazingness of your calling, the truth of your calling, and the fact that they can they can do it. They can. Don't let them call something that you've called clean unclean. God, I pray against that right now. In the authority of Jesus, I pray that right now that you destroy any kind of mindset that says they can't. God, you've, you've called them worthy. Don't let them call themselves unworthy. You've called them competent. Don't let them call themselves uncompetent. God, that you're the one that's in charge. You're the Savior. You're the King. You're the one that's given life and breath. God, you have the the ability to do anything that you want with them. There's nobody in this group that's not worthy. There's nobody in this group that's sinned too much. There's nobody in this group that is incompetent. There's nobody in this group that is, has it's gone too far or too long or they're too old or too young. Or, God, you're the one. So, Lord, we just surrender ourselves to you. We just surrender ourselves to you. Everybody up here, you've got to say that to him somehow. In your, in your own ways. I think everybody in the room, you've got to say to God, God, I surrender myself. My life, it's yours, it's not mine. My past, my present, my future, it's yours, it's not mine. God, I place it in your hands. Place my mind, my body, my finances, I place them all in your hands. In the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray the same thing they prayed in Acts 4. Give us boldness. And then you filled them with the Spirit, and they went out and preached the Word of God with boldness. God, we thank you for this. Fill us with your Spirit. Fill us with your power. In the name of Jesus. God, I pray all across this room, we will be who you've called us to be. We will be who you've called us to be. And we will respond to that in the name of Jesus. just keep praying before noon tomorrow God's going to give you the chance to let somebody know Jesus loves them do the best you can tell somebody about Jesus take the take the chance and just talk to them pray for somebody do something and God will honor that in your life it's a guarantee so being respectful of these up here praying You can take off, you can shake hands, you can do all that kind of stuff. Um, Kind of move out into the foyer as you're doing that so they they have plenty of time to just spend some time with the Lord. We will see you Wednesday night.
心。